I want to uh, review one or two things about where we are, uh, and we'll be kind of in this cycle for the next couple of chapters. Um, in chapter three, Solomon brings God, well, really at the end of chapter two, he brings God into the picture and says, God is the source of wisdom, knowledge, and joy. And he, he, that's something he brings up a lot, that enjoy life. It's a gift from God. God gives us the capacity to enjoy life. And in that same section, then as he moves into chapter three, he develops quite extensively, extensively what I call the providence of God. It's an element of his sovereignty, the providence of God, that he's involved in his world. Things don't just happen by chance. This isn't a God's not a fair weather friend who creates and then leaves, just hopes for the best. That's not God. But Solomon is finding a challenge with believing that. He's struggling with that. And if you are intellectually honest, you struggle with that too, Uh, whether you even thought about it in that category or not. We're kind of right in the middle of what he's saying. If God's providence is real, as the dimension of God's sovereignty, and it's real, then why why am I seeing so many things that don't make sense to me? And today... We're going to conclude this first section and into chapter five. But the, the things that, that just don't make sense to him, if God's probably, why is he allowing so much envy and greed and exploitation and oppression? Why is he allowing that? He doesn't answer that question. He just makes that observation. This is what I'm seeing, and this is vain. This doesn't make sense to me. So what I want to do is step back just for a minute and remind us of something. He doesn't really bring this up, what I'm about to deal with. He doesn't really bring this up to the end of the book. But if God's sovereignty is real, his providence is real, he's involved, he's an imminent God, he's involved in his world, then why is the greed and envy and oppression and exploitation? Because of sin. In other words, and Solomon doesn't deal. He's just saying, I'm observing all this. It doesn't make sense. It's, that's what, to me, it's always a little bit frustrating in, in only the sense that he doesn't really answer that until near the end of the book. But it's important for you and me to remember that. The reason things are in such a mess and why you see all this stuff, and we're going to be reading more about as we get into the next chapter, is because of sin. This is a broken world. And things are not going to work well even for believers, until Jesus comes back. We're still going to have situations where it's, it's icy, and we're going to fall, we're going to break our arm. We are not protected from that. Now, God obviously took care of Bill and all the wonderful medical uh, aspects of technology and some that we, we're fortunate to live with, but still we're going to fall and break our arm. We're going to have automobile accidents. People are going to get sick. People are going to get cancer. There are going to be wars. There's going to be exploitation. There's going to be oppression. And so this is what Solomon keeps observing all this. And so what he's doing is he's being brutally honest. I accept that God makes everything beautiful in its time. I accept that God has put eternity in the human heart. But then he said, remember, that's the third point. But God's providence, I can't figure it out. I can't figure out all that God's doing. And so we're kind of in the middle of that. This, it's, it's almost a, um, be the right word, almost like a, as a frustration in Solomon. 
with what he sees and observes. Because he can't, he doesn't seem to be able to resolve any of this. They keep saying, this is vanity, this is futile, this doesn't make sense. So that's, that's being intellectually honest about the world in which we live. And you have a question. Rob, go ahead. Well, when I think about this question, God willing, I'm following his word. I I get back to his gift of freedom. He cannot be consistent and allow us to keep the freedom he gave us unless he lets us make choices freely. The, the devil is there. He will tempt us. And many times we make bad choices. That's part of the bargain. So what you're also, uh, and I appreciate that. I, I don't disagree with that for the most part. What, what you're bringing in also to the question of this frustration that we see in what Solomon is observing is humans are responsibly free. That's how I like to put it. Not, I don't like free will. Uh, it's not in the Bible, actually, but that, that there's, there's too much unresolved with free will. But to say we're responsibly free, in other words, we make a choice, we make a decision, and we're responsible for that. We live with the consequences of the choices we make. And God is... He just says this, although it's clear in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, his creation, as image bearers, his creation is not a creation of robots. It's a creation of responsibly free image bearers. And God isn't up there saying, oh, I just hope, I hope Gabriel makes the right choice. But if they don't, what am I going to do? That, you know, that's ridiculous to talk like that. So, um, what, God, what Solomon is observing is the result of you, and what I wrote on the board last week, the result of you and I being finite, being temporal, and being sinful. In dealing with and trying to understand a God, God who's infinite, who's eternal, and who's sovereign, and his providence is real. To bring those two together is really hard. And we also live in a world that he made that has physical laws that work. Gravity works every time. That's right. I found that out again. That's right. His physical laws are binding on us, but so are his moral laws. And this is the so are his moral laws. If we choose to violate those moral standards, he we're responsibly free, and we can choose not to do that. That is to obey him. But then we will live with. We will see worked out the consequences. Jim, don't you think that he didn't want robotons? That he wanted us. I mean, I think of our my daughter, and, you know, when, when they would uh, come and kind of put their arms around me and tell me that I love me on their own. That meant a lot to me. That's exactly what God wants. God wants us to love Him and seek to, desire to and intentionally want to obey him and love him. Jesus says, the measure of your love for me is that you obey me. Remember, he says, if you love me, keep my commandment. So it's that, that's why I like to put, we, we walk in loving obedience with the Lord, but we walk by faith. Because 
And this is what this is where Solomon is, it seems to me. I've tried to work through this, studied this so many times, I've taught it several times. What what why is Solomon just not saying, well, I trust God and everything's gonna be fine? He's he's doing what he's being brutally honest like we are. Lord, I trust you, but I don't understand why you're letting that happen. I mean, I believe you in your goodness, but Lord, why are you letting that happen? I just read this morning, I get a, a little thing from Christianity Today every day, and it's the brutality of what Russia is doing to evangelical Christian ministers. Because Ukraine was, is, such, was such, is such a center of evangelical, it's like they call it the Bible Belt of Central Europe. But the brutality of what Russia is doing, they're singling out these pastors, and they're either shooting them or they're putting them in jail. And they're, they're taking hordes and hordes and hordes of children into Russia and putting them in these camps to re-educate them. How can anybody support a guy like that? How can anybody say anything positive about a guy like that? Well, I'm, well, I'm, I'm just illustrating that. But I read about that. I said, I, my first reaction was, well, why are you allowing that to happen? Wow. These are pastors who love you. These churches have been destroyed by Russia. And they're... they're, they're it's just, I won't go into any more detail, but it's just, it's a, and I said, you know, I was, it's my immediate reaction when I read this one. And what's the answer to that? Well, part of the answer to that is sin. <laughs> and the responsible freedom of brutal dictators. But, and we learn this from history, and we learn this from the Bible. God will only let them go so far. As with Hitler and Mussolini and Mao Zedong and all these other horrible guys of history. So at anyway, but so Solomon is at this point. And so if we look at verse 13 of chapter 4, he's kind of bringing this section to an end, and then we'll transition to chapter 5. Now, this is a little hard. It's These are spoken like Proverbs, proverbial type language. Better was a wise and a poor and wise youth than... An old and fully king, so he's comparing to, who no longer knew how to take advice. Okay? For he went from prison to the throne. He would be the poor, wise youth, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who made, who moved about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet, those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is vanity and striving after win. Okay, what's he observing? He's observing two things. And you know, we have no idea what kingdom he's talking about or where he saw this, but he's saying, I see two things. An old, foolish king who will no longer take advice. Nobody can give him counsel. And I see a poor, wise youth who works his way up and becomes a king. He's a good king. He settles some things. He makes good, wise decisions. But what happens? People are happy. Now people forget him. They don't to rejoice. They don't about him, but they don't even write a book about him. He's like a spot, a little speck on the books of history, and nobody remembers him. And Solomon says, what? He did what was right. Versus the, an old king who was foolish and no longer took advice from anybody. Which one's a better ruler? Well, that's not difficult, but nobody remembers. That's all it just says. 
And so he's just expect if God is pro if God's providence is real, why do I see things like that? If God's sovereignty is real and God's good, why do I see things like that? You see, he doesn't resolve it. He doesn't answer it. He's just expressing it. Because believing in God and, and his providence and his sovereignty is not necessarily going to reduce the tension that you and I feel living in a fallen, broken world. I, in, my, in my own theology, in my own life, and as, as I responded this morning, as I just prayed about it, I immediately went and just said, Lord, that, and I just said, but you're good, and you set the limits. You're only going to let Putin go so far for whatever reasons. And God always takes monstrously evil things that humans who are in rebellion against him do and can bring righteous good out of it. And there's part of God knows the end from the beginning. He knows, and I have to trust him with that, even though I find that reprehensible and offensive. And in my heart is I want to get a gun and shoot Vladimir Putin. So I know you can't imagine ever thinking about that. Corey Ten Boon was an example yeah, of that. Too. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So much of what Solomon is, is raising for us is, to me, it's right where I'm at a lot of the time. Now, chapter 5, uh, and if you don't mind, I'm just going to keep going. Chapter 5, it's a little bit of a different focus, but he wants to go back and he wants to talk about work and labor and what we do, that God wants us to enjoy our work and what we do. But Solomon says, I observe that a lot of people are not able to enjoy the fruits of their labor. They work hard, but they're not able to enjoy the, the fruits of what they do. And this creates tension for him. But I love how he begins this little section. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. So immediately in the first, it's really seven verses of chapter five, it's kind of a unit. He's gonna talk now about worship. Now, in Solomon's day, that would have meant going into the temple because, you know, he built the temple and so on. Now, he said, okay, to draw near, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, but they do not know that they are doing evil. Okay, that's obvious. I go to worship to listen. I want to hear from God. In the Old Testament context, it was what the priest, Levitical priest said. For you and me, it's what the pastor says. As the pastor is expositing God's word. Then to offer a sacrifice. Okay, what does that mean? Somebody that's going, they're going through the motions. They're going through the rigid motions. They don't mean it. They don't care. But then he says, in your response to God, in your response to his word, in your response to listen and you hear, you respond. Be careful how you respond. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you on earth. Let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, a fool's voice with many words. When you vow about to God, do not delay in paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay your vow. It's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. 
Let your mouth lead you into sin, not lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger, the priest, it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For dreams increase, words grow many, but God is the one you must fear. All right, what in the world is all this about? How do you respond? How do you respond to hearing from God's word? He says, don't make a promise to God that you can't keep. That's pretty wise counsel, isn't it? What does he mean? I'm going to try to put it in our context, in, in, you know, in the ancient world, or maybe it been some. You hear God's word proclaimed by the Levitical priest. You, you hear the law expounded, and you say, Lord, I'm going to make you a promise. I will never tell another law. I promise you, God, I'm so moved by what that priest said about that commandment of your moral law revealed that you're a God of truth and you're a God who only honors truth. Lord, I promise you, I will never tell another lie. Solomon is saying, be careful because God heard that. That isn't a dream. God heard you say that. And if you are not committed to keeping it, it would be better if you didn't make that vow. And that's, that's all he's saying here. God's in heaven. You're on earth. He's up there sovereignly ruling over his world. You're down here on earth, one of his creatures. There's a gulf between you two. But he's bridged that gulf. But you be careful what you promised him. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I, when I first started to walk with Lord in 1972, I can remember those years, it was about two years, I can remember making promises to God. I can, I can remember, Lord, I promise you, I will never do that again. And I did it again. And then I did it again. You know, I mean, so Solomon, it's, it's an incredibly, because he says two things. First, I'll get to your question just a minute. In verse four, he says, God has no pleasure in fools. That's the first counsel. And the second counsel is, God can be angry at your voice. Now, that's not the anger and wrath of a judgmental God. That's the anger of a God who will discipline you because you've done something foolish. And so this is just this, because sometimes you make a vow. It has financial and monetary consequences to it. You have to pay something. And so this is what Solomon is saying. Why do people do that? Why do people make such stupid promises to God? They make a vow and then they don't keep it. As if God isn't going to hold them to that? As if God doesn't hear it? It's like a dream? No, Solomon is saying. You're acting like a fool and God's going to call you to account. And because God is perfect in his righteousness, his righteous indignation often results in his discipline. There are the facts about God. Now, just remember that. They just take pleasure in fools, and his righteous indignation will cause him to discipline. Just remember that when you make a vow. Because if you're not intending on keeping that vow, don't make it. God's not forcing you to make that vow. He's not coercing you. Just be wise in what you're doing 
as you talk to God. That's why you keep bringing up your word. As you talk to God, be wise in what you say to him. Don't say something you don't really mean. Don't make a promise that you really are not going to keep. God's not that kind. He's enthroned in heaven. It's not like you're talking to another human being here. He's enthroned in heaven. You're on earth. Remember who he is. It's not that he doesn't want you to make a promise. Just be careful what you promise. Because God hears everything. Okay, Rob. Um, would it be wiser, instead of promising that we tell a lie, to ask God to help you be truthful? Of course. Or even, even better, give thanks to God because he has the power to help you. Amen. Mm-hmm. And Jim, one thing, too, I think if we're like Bill's dealing with this on here, uh, communication should be not based on other people and what how we want to impress them at all, but our personal unilateral relationship with God and how he's working and dealing in our lives and conforming us more to his being, it seems, and then we don't get caught up in this looking around peripheral and, and facing our promises or our hopes or aspirations on other people's lives. It's simply unilaterally you know, how God has given us life and how we are working through that life for Him. And then we get rid of a lot of that peripheral, don't you think, Amy? I think another uh, uh, application of even what you're saying as well as what Solomon was saying, don't, don't view your conversation with the Lord the same you view conversation with other people. Don't try to impress him. Don't try to rationalize. Don't, don't, I, I want to say the right things to really impress you and make you think well of me, God. God doesn't need any of that. He wants you to be brutally honest with him. And it's not that, we don't, you know, if you're ticked off, at, in my view, I don't know if you guys agree, and you're ticked off, he's not afraid if you tell him, I'm, Lord, I'm really angry with you right now. I don't understand what you're doing. I'm really afraid. He's okay. He can handle that. <laughs> That's what the Psalms are all about. But at the same time, Psalm is just, he's zeroing in one pinpoint thing. Be careful what you promise God. Because if you don't keep it, it could have profound, profound consequences in your life. To me, that's very wise. It's a very wise counsel. And again, I mentioned earlier, I remember when I first started, I made a lot of promises to God that I really fundamentally, when it all distilled down, I really didn't mean that. And sometimes, even as we talk about, we're trying to manipulate him. We're saying things that we think we know he wants us to say, but in a real sense, you know, we really don't mean it. Really, sort of, in a way. You know, I mean, that's what I love. That's why I love the Psalms, because the psalmist, the psalmist is being honest with God. And God can handle it. Whatever we say, he can handle it. But don't lie to him. So it's like Job. See, at the end of Job, when Job starts questioning God, God finally has enough to say, but where were you when yeah. I did this? Sit down, Joe. I have some questions to ask you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a good example. 
movie called The End. It's a Burt Reynolds movie. And he's out in the middle of the ocean. I mean, miles away from shore. He's swimming towards shore. He's saying, God, if you save me, I'll be, you know, yeah. I'll be true to you the rest of my life. And the closer he gets, the more watered down his promise is. I did not, I've not seen that movie. That's, that sounds, uh, that's essentially what we do now. All right, let's move on then and look at some of these other illustrations. The, the first one, well, it's not the first one, it's the second one, which is verse eight and nine. Now, notice, notice this again. Here's providence of God, who God is inside. This is what I'm seeing. If you see in a province, uh, like you know, a governmental province, a county, a state, or back then a, a principality, the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness do not be amazed matter. That's how the ESV translates that. Do not be amazed. I mean, isn't that, that's, that's a fascinating command. If you see extortion, if you see oppression, if you see justice being violated, righteousness being violated, don't be amazed at this. Why? Well, the high official is watched by higher and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is a gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. What in the world is, what in the world is he saying there? Um, if you see oppressive work, actions, practices that violate justice in government, in a society, don't be surprised at that because there's a hierarchy of authority in government. And everybody takes a little chunk. Now in the ancient world, it was, I know we don't like taxes and we think taxes are oppressive and all that, but if you go back to the ancient world, I mean, about 80% of your income was taxed because at every, at every layer, somebody's taking something. And Solomon, it's just, Solomon doesn't resolve it. Solomon just says the king is committed to cultivating his fields. The king takes care of himself. And everybody under him takes care of himself. And then they're you. And you are the object of his extortion. I'm using a really strong word there, but you're the object of doing this, which from our vantage point, it looks terribly, grossly unfair. Do you remember, maybe you don't, but I'll, I'll, I'll use this as an illustration. If you're in the early chapters of First Samuel, Samuel is the last judge, and the people of this will come to him and say, we want a king. Just like all the nations around us. And so, I mean, Samuel is just absolutely, he takes this very personally and it's front to him and all that. And God says, no, look, tell the people they're going to get a king, but explain to them the consequences of having a king. And you remember his explanation? Going to have a king. God told me to tell you you're going to have a king. It actually was part of God's plan, but that doesn't enter at that point in the discussion. But I want to tell you, people of Israel, the king is going to tax you. 
And the king is going to tax everything you do. And the king is going to conscript your young sons into his army. And he's going to conscript your sons and your daughters into his workforce. It will be a quasi-form of slavery, indentured servitude. Because the king is the most important person in society. And everything about the king is now going to be for you. You're going to be subservient to him because he's number one. I'm really paraphrasing. That's, and so uh, Samuel just says, okay, you're going to get a king, but you are going to live with the consequences of the desire to have a king. And it's setting us up for a major theme in the Old Testament. No king is ever going to shepherd the people of Israel in perfect justice and righteousness. Even King David. So what does Israel need? A perfect king who will shepherd them in perfect righteousness and justice. Who's that? Jesus. You see, this this is one of the, it's a huge meta-narrative theme in the Old Testament. There is going to be a king, and there are going to be some good kings, David, Jehoshaphat, King Asa. Josiah, Hezekiah, good kings. But they weren't perfect in righteousness and justice. Matter of fact, all of those guys, there were some really serious issues. They need Jesus. He's a good shepherd, a shepherd king. And I'm saying all that because all Solomon is doing in verse 8 and 9, he's not making any value judgment. He's just saying, you're going to have a king, you're going to have authority, that's what you're going to see. And in this fallen, broken world, that's what you're going to see until Jesus comes back. Because there's no perfect ruler. Jim, wasn't there a king that uh, he did right in God's eyes? Was it Josiah? Well, of David, it said he was man after God's own heart. Yeah. Which is uh, the key. And Hezekiah, it is said of him that he did what was right in the eyes. A number of the kings. If you, if you, especially in in uh, first and second kings, uh, those two history books is where you see that they're always measured against David. He did was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as King David had done. They say that of Josiah, say that of Hezekiah, say that of Jehoshaphat, say that of King Asa, and others that that I mentioned. So that's that I believe is what you're talking about. Okay, next example. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. What advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. (laughs) In your notes, I just called this covetousness. This is a major theme of the book of Ecclesiastes, and you've seen this theme before. He who loves money, greed, miserly, Ebenezer Scrooge, will never be satisfied, nor he who loves wealth with his income. What does that mean? Never going to get enough. And he, he goes on, and he just he illustrates with the goods, and when the goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage does the owner, but to see him with his eyes. That's really an interesting to see him with his eyes. That's figurative language. But what does he mean? Well, 
as his wealth increases, his expenses increase, and all the other people who work for him and so on. So what does he really enjoy? He just enjoys sitting there looking at his wealth. Look at how much I have. And so I'm just putting a big question mark. Is that really enjoying life? In my picture, I don't know if you have ever seen over Christmas some of the movies about Ebenezer Scrooge and Christmas Carol, where you've read Dickens' Christmas Carol. You know, the picture is Ebenezer Scrooge sitting at his desk there in London, counting his money. And right across the room is his clerk, you know, Bob Cratchit and so on. And Cratchit just inching out of life with his family on 15 shillings a week. And here's Ebenezer Scrooge just absolutely drowning in money. And, of course, he's happy and he's content. No, he's counting his money. What does he do? It locks on a safe then goes home. And all he's saying is, well, where's the joy in his life? He sits and looks at his wealth. And the man who's his laborer, he, he sleeps well. But the full stomach, F-U-L-L, not F-O-O-L, the full stomach of the rich won't let him sleep. He doesn't even sleep well. He eats well, but doesn't sleep well. Now, you can do a lot of things. Today, you and I would go, well, that's because he's not eating very well. And his stomach's all turned up. His intestinal system isn't working. He doesn't like sleep. Or it could mean because he's wealthy and he enjoys good food, he doesn't have a good night's sleep. He's worrying about his wealth, worrying about his, his work and his investments, and worrying about my office is where I have my safe. Did somebody break in there? I mean, they're the kind of things that maybe he has in the back of Psalms. Like he says earlier in the book, that the, the man who is very successful, lots of wealth, and very involved in business and so on, he never enjoys a good night's sleep because he's always worried. I don't know about you, but I should have been out fine. Now, you want to see my worry list that I'm worrying about currently? All Solomon is saying is what he said all along. He who loves money will never be satisfied. Then verse 13, and he's going he's gonna to reach a conclusion. I hope I can get to that before the class is over in verse 18, 18, and 20. But one more thing in verse 13. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Those riches were lost in a bad venture. That should resonate. There have been a lot of people who have invested in some pretty bad investments over the years. One thinks of WorldCom. Do you remember that corporation? I remember WorldCom well. Not too many years ago. If you had WorldCom stock, you didn't end up very well. Or uh, remember Enron? Remember I used to be here in town? Remember all that? Enron? Level three. Huh? Level three. Yeah, level three. Another, I mean, and people, I, I remember level three because at that time I was raising money for building our fitness center. And it was fascinating. These people that had level three stock, they were saying, well, I'll tell you what, give me another three or four months. And I, I'm going to give you some stock because I'm waiting for it. It's now at 120, going to be at 130, 135. Then I'm going to give you some. Well, it wasn't too long after that that the dot-com bubble burst, and all of a sudden Enron went from like 
$40 a share to a dollar and 50 cents a share. And that's, that's kind of what he said. I, I've observed this. this is a grievous thing for me to watch. Solomon says. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's a father of a son. He's a family. Several people I knew that had invested in level three, they had to sell their home in West Omaha because they couldn't pay their mortgage. As he comes from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came. He shall take nothing for his toil that he had carry away in his hand. So Solomon's making two so Number one, this guy put his money in a bad venture and failed. His family is take care of. And in addition to that, he's forgetting something. He came into the world with nothing, and he's going to leave the world with nothing. You've heard that old saying. You've never seen a hearse pulling on you all. Have you? you know, and we don't do that. Because when we die, that's it. We don't take anything with us except our children. We can take our children with us to heaven. Well, that's another story. There's a grievous evil. Just as he came, so she'll go. What gain is it to him who toils for the wind? Over all his days, he eats in darkness, in much vexation, that's mental anguish, and sickness and anger. Solomon says, I've observed a lot of that. That's not wise. It's another one of those dimensions of living for the moment and not being wise. And a lot of the well, I don't know if I should say that, but a lot of the people that invested heaven level three or WorldCom or Enron or some of those others, not that they were fools, but if you put what my mother used to say, don't put all your eggs in one basket. I never knew what that meant until I was about 50. Then I understood what she meant by that. <laughs> but in a sense, if you pour all of your investment into level three, that doesn't seem wise. I mean, it just doesn't seem wise to do that. And so, all Solomon is observing. So, okay, these are four illustrations, as, as we've seen in chapter four, uh, excuse me, chapter five. Four illustrations. And this is vexing to him. It, it, it's, it's hard for him. I, why does this occur? So he said, I'm going to step back now. And so chapter five, verses 18 and 20 are so refreshing. They're so refreshing. He's back now to, okay, I can't understand all this. I can't figure all this out. I can't satisfactorily answer all this. But behold, what I have seen to be good. So there is something good that I can enjoy. There's something good this side of eternity. To eat to drink, and to find enjoyment in my work under the sun, the few days of life that God's given me. So what's good? He makes the declaration, I've seen this to be good. What's good? To enjoy what God has given me in the days he's given me. Life is brief. Life is short. That's my lot. And joy. This is a theme we saw at the end of chapter 2. We saw in chapter 3. We're going to see it in almost, I think, almost every chapter. 
before we get to chapter 11, he brings up this theme of joy. Joy is a gift from God, that capacity to enjoy your life. It's hard. It's a broken, fallen world, but to enjoy the life that God gets, the lot that he's given you. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions, he's given, look at this, the power to enjoy them. There's a commentary. God is not against wealth. God is not against that. As a matter of fact, if, you, if someone has a capacity to earn money, God's given them that capacity. But what do they do with it? Become an Ebenezer Scrooge or enjoy? Now, with that goes other things he's going to be talking about in the upcoming chapters. But the generosity and grace that comes in enjoying life. Miserliness and greed is not enjoying life, as he's already said. Accept that way. Rejoice in his talk. That's a gift from God. For he will not remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. You see, how many times has the word joy or enjoy been used in this little short paragraph? Several times. Bring it up. It's almost like he's saying, you cannot resolve all this tension. Of, I'm going to put it in my words. You can't resolve all this tension of living in a fallen, broken world. You're never going to figure everything out. So enjoy the lot God has given to you. Now, that doesn't mean we don't think. That doesn't mean we don't. And that's not what he's saying. But you keep coming back. God has blessed me, whatever my state in life is. God's blessed me, and he wants me to enjoy the life that he's given me. I've known a lot of wealthy men in my life. Uh, and a lot of men I've known that are wealthy do not enjoy life. They don't have joy. Some do, and those who have come to know the Lord are learning what that means as well. But Solomon is giving, I think, uh, that's why I love these verses, 18, 19, and 20. But it's, after all this frustration and tension and stuff, he, I see this, and it doesn't make sense to me. I'm coming back to square God's sovereign, God's providence is real. God, well, however God blesses, whatever that means, enjoy. And again, think about, go to the New Testament, and just think about how many times joy comes up. The Apostle Paul will write in, in Philippians chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice in the Lord. He will say at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that the importance of enjoying and having a thankful spirit about life. Not griping, not murmuring, not complaining, not groaning. How awful my life is, but to enjoy. Whatever your lot is, enjoy it. Now, one more thought. Point. Remember that joy is one of the fruit of the Spirit. So it's a supernatural. That's what Solomon's saying. God gives them, gives you this gift of joy in your heart. Now I don't know about you, but isn't in in a sense though, in a really very real sense, isn't that it's encouragement? It's an isn't nobody's agreeing with me. It's an encouragement to. 
I want to, I want to, this is the kind of person I want to be. I'm not going to get all my questions. I'm not going to solve everything. But what I want to enjoy the lot you give it to me. I'm a day laborer or I'm an executive. I want to enjoy what God gives me to do. This is somewhat humorous. I've been married almost 54 years. And um, this little incident is uh, my wife and I have learned to cooperate again a little more than we did. <laughs> it's hard to shower, dress yourself, and do things. But, uh, you can't get part of your around body. Body. You can't put your own clothes on. The reality is coming can't dry yourself off. <laughs> And you find joy in that, right? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Oh, that's that's really, yeah, that is really really good. In your, if you're, if you have your notes on page 18, I gave you a it's a PowerPoint of that slide of those verses. But then I I drew draw five conclusions, and I want to make sure. Make sure that you, you know, it summarizes what we've been talking about in this chapter. God's proposed course for living is good. That's how that verse 18 starts. God's parent clan can also be declared to be a beautiful path to travel. It possesses aesthetic, practical qualities, moral perfection, enjoyment, not worldly accumulations, is the principal end to be sought. To me, and that's really what he's been saying through the book, but enjoyment, not worldly accommodation, is the principal end to be sought. To enjoy life. Well, you have that? No. You have that? I don't think we got it. Let's I think it is a much more common off a different version, a different handout. Oh, really? If you'll send it, I'll send it out. Yeah, I will. I thought, well, how come I have it? You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, we're, we're in here. Verse 5, I'm only on page 10. Of yeah, this okay. Handout. Okay. Well, yeah, it, it, don't use the handout from eight years ago. Okay, I thought, okay. All right, I will I will make sure. Yeah. <laughs> I will make sure, okay. But anyway, so, and then just, uh, I'll, I'll just read that last one. God is the source. God himself is the source of joy and contentment. Humans are enjoy life because they enjoy the person of God himself. And that, uh, that to me, I think, of course, is such a obviously very profound conclusion about about life. And to enjoy life is, is first of all to enjoy God. And because of the cross and all of that Jesus has accomplished, to have the joy of the Lord, in the words of Nehemiah, actually, to have the joy of the Lord is our strength. And that's oh, that's so refreshing. Uh, that's something I've learned, and I've learned more about that aspect of my life and what I need from my wife than I did from any other human being. And uh, I've never had to ask Peggy to help me get a shower, Bill, but I'm sure there's coming a point where that might occur. 
but uh, how, uh, how important that is. And the other, uh, our, our little grandson, Luca, is eight months old, and he's a Down syndrome baby, and he can't hear. He's going to have cochlear implant surgery in May. But he's the happiest little guy. I mean, he's just, everything, he just smiles and happy. We just got a little video of his daddy, uh, Andrew, playing with him on the floor, and he's laughing. And I just thought, you know, that's the, Solomon talks about that, and we see that in some of the Psalms. The joy of a little child. No burdens. Nothing to be worried about. They know mom's going to feed them. They know they're going to, you know, they, they just, <laughs> now they're very demanding. And if you don't feed them, they make your life utterly miserable. But it's still that, just that the joy of a child clothes in that innocence. They're still sinners. No need to come to faith. But that joy and that, you see, I want to I approach life that way. And that's something that I'm still very much in process of learning. Chapter 6, he continues now, and I'll introduce this in a few minutes I have. I will send you this, um, and I, what I will do, if you don't mind, I'm going to send you what apparently I didn't send. I thought I did. The expanded notes that I did on Ecclesiastes, it's like 26 pages. So I will send you that, uh, or 27, whatever it is. And then you could just send it out. It will have as expanded notes that I was referring to. Mm-hmm. Chapter 6. Now, again, in the original, there are no chapter breaks. It just goes from one to another. So it's not like he's starting a new subject. But he says, there's an evil. I'm in verse 1 of chapter 6. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. This is something that he he's... He sees as a heavy burden for humanity. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, honor, says he has nothing that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. Now, the Hebrew word there that I read in ESV translation in verse 2 they translate it a stranger. We're not exactly sure what Solomon means by that. But it, it would seem as if it's not a son or a child. A stranger, it's someone that, that he either does not know or it's not someone that he's close to. So the, the situation that he's beginning to help us think about is it's something that he's observed. God has given this person wealth, possessions, honor. He lacks nothing, anything he desires. But he does not have the power to enjoy it. Someone else enjoys it. Who would that be? What's the situation? Well, he, we don't know. He's going to talk a little more about that. But here's a man who has all these gifts to earn, lots of money, and he has so much of anything he wants, he can indulge in, but he's not enjoying his life. Somebody else is going to enjoy it. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied. 
with life's good things, and he has no burial, I say, this is an extraordinary claim. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. <gasps> That's almost outrageous. What do you mean? How could he make such an audacious statement? It just grabs you. It shocks you. If you can't enjoy your wealth, if you can't enjoy the good things God gives you, maybe it's better off to be a stillborn child. The point is that stillborn is in heaven. Yeah, well, you could, you could go theologically to that conclusion. But it's, it's an extraordinary, shocking. You see, he's driving home this point that he's been making through the book. Accumulating things is not the chief end of life. Enjoying life is the chief end. Now, he's going to start adding some spiritual dimensions to the joy. It's enjoying God as well as enjoying the things God gives you. But this is, this is profound when you start to really think about it. You have someone, God's given this person the capacity to earn lots of money. They have lots of positions and honor. People honor them. They're respected people in the community. But they don't enjoy life. As a matter of fact, all that they've accumulated, somebody else is going to enjoy and you can put in that someone else, because that's a very nebulous word to stranger. It's, he could have been very specific, your heir, your child. He doesn't. He uses the word stranger. Somebody that you're not close to. Somebody. So you, you have that. Oh, my goodness. If a person could lose their life that way, it would be better if they were still born. It comes to vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness his name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest. Than he, even though he would live a thousand years twice over and yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. Yeah. Now he, he's using. I'm, I'm out of time here. I've got to quit. <clears throat> Hyperbolic, shocking language here. How important it is to enjoy what God has given. And if you don't, maybe it'd be better if you were a stillborn child. Because the stillborn child has found rest. You have I'm going to have to quit with this. I want to pick up with verse 7. But he's going to go back. When we get to verse 10, 11, and 12, he's going to go back and bring God into the picture again. But, man, when, you, when I read something like this, I have to think, you know, that is really true. You have massive amounts of wealth and massive amounts of physical possession, but if you're not enjoying that, what value is that? What, what's the purpose of that? It better be a stillborn child. At least the stillborn child is not rest. You're not at rest. So it's pretty, it's pretty shocking. But I, I think the point he's making is, is good. Uh, we'll pick up on, on next uh, Wednesday then. Let me pray. I'm going to get you.
get you out of here. Lord, we've seen this theme resonate in our discussion this morning. The importance of enjoying life. It's a gift from you. Solomon says you give us the capacity to enjoy life, as well as the ability to earn money, work at our work, etc., whatever it is. But if we don't enjoy it, what purpose is there? It's a major, major theme of Scripture. And I think so often we, 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 we miss that. And whatever our lot in life, and whatever the specific circumstances are to enjoy, what God has given us, he's given us the capacity to enjoy life. Let's make sure we're enjoying it. I pray this for the men here in the room. I pray that for the men in, online to enjoy. And if we're not enjoying what we're doing, ask God as a prayer request. Help me, Lord, to enjoy what you've given. Enjoy the circumstances of my life. Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Paul commands us to have joy in everything we do. Lord, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. It's a supernatural quality of life. Help us to be men of joy. It's one of the marks of walking with you, it seems to me. And help me in that area. That is an area I need to continue to work on. And I just pray you, in your grace, give all of us that capacity to represent you well in all areas and dimensions of our life. We love you, Lord, for everything you've done for us. We want to be sure that everything we do for you is pleasing and honoring to you. Dismiss us with your blessing now, we pray in your son's name.